Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue this morning with our exposition of what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing upon us. And I'll ask you to stand with me as I read that portion of God's Word. Let us pray. Oh, blessed God, we come now to the instruction of how to pray. And Lord, we need this instruction. We need our minds trained and our hearts fixed. We need to know how to pray. Lord, we need to know what to pray. We need to know how to bless your name and how to bless our brothers and our sisters. Lord, teach us to pray this morning. Teach us to understand repentance and forgiveness. Teach us, O Lord, how to walk with our brothers and sisters in forgiveness. O Lord, we commit this time to you and ask that you would come in the power of your word, in the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, and in all the means of grace to grow us up and mature us this morning. As we hear the Word of God preached, give us receptive hearts to receive, Lord. Give us minds to understand. Give us wills to desire it as newborn babies desire the milk from their mother. O come, O God, and bless us and glorify Thee, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, brothers and sisters, as I read this portion of God's Word. Now our Lord Jesus said, Pray then in this way, in verse 9, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you may be seated. Last week, brothers and sisters, if you remember... As we begin looking at verse 12, that fifth petition, which is forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, I spent the whole morning making the connection between this petition and the previous one. Making sure that we all understood what Jesus was doing. That these are not any... uh, uh, disconnected thoughts and ideas, but that these are simply a, a, a chain or a, a stream of thoughts that ought to be connected and remain together if we are going to profit the way we should from this lesson. There is no reason for anyone To expect the blessings of God in this life, our daily bread. There is no reason for any person to expect the blessings of God in this life if they are not interested in holy living. And that's what this petition addresses. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
This morning we are going to consider this petition as it is here in the Gospel of Matthew. Because this prayer is not only found in Matthew, it's also found in Mark and in Luke. And there are some variations. There are some uh, parts of it that may be clearer in the other evangelist but we are going to consider this prayer as it is given to us in Matthew and the first thing that we are going to consider about this petition which is forgive us our debts is we're going to consider who is to ask for forgiveness who is to ask for forgiveness and the second thing if we make it that far we're going to consider who is to be asked for pardon And these two things are vital and very important. And they are important for different and various reasons. First of all, let us consider who is to ask for forgiveness. Who is to be interested in forgiveness? What man, what woman, what child, what young person ought to be interested in? In asking God's forgiveness. Well, we need to remember who Jesus is instructing. We need to remember who Jesus is teaching. Who are those in His immediate presence? Turn in your Bibles to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Notice verse 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him and He opened His mouth and began to teach them. This is significant. Witnessing the crowds and the difficulty that Jesus would have in the midst of a a, a large group of people to instruct and to aid His disciples in the ways of holiness and righteousness, Jesus sought out a private place to instruct them. It wasn't that Jesus did not want to instruct the crowd in, in the crowds. In fact, this sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Luke explains it, comes later on in Jesus' ministry. That is, when we read it in the Gospel of Matthew, it looks like it's preached at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Not so. Matthew wasn't concerned with the chronology of Jesus' life more than he was the certain events of Jesus' life. Matthew's desire was to take certain things out of the time that Christ was on this earth and to set them up for his readers, primarily Jews, to aid them in understanding that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And Matthew goes directly from the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over Satan himself and to the very begin to the, the preaching of the gospel. And he lays before us this sermon in order to instruct us in righteousness. 
Certainly do not have time to go and rehash many of those verses that we've already looked at as we be, as I began explaining to you this prayer. But to understand that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is set down with His disciples and now He is instructing them in the ways of holiness. It's important, brothers and sisters, that disciples be instructed. It's important that disciples learn what righteousness is, what holiness is, what prayer is. It's important, and it, dis, and it just doesn't come naturally. Think about it. We make a profession in faith. We begin to, uh, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We trust and rest upon Him for our eternity. And the question at that point in time is, should be to every true Christian, how do I follow my Master? How do I follow my new Master? You see, the word disciple itself is not magical or mystical in, in any way. The Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. Moses had disciples. The Greek philosophers had their disciples. And the Lord Jesus Christ had his disciples. What does the word disciple mean? Well, the word in its simplest form means learner. Pupil, learner or pupil, student. To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a learner of Christ, is to be a student of Christ. A student of Christ in what way? Of His teachings, of His ways. How Jesus thinks we should want to think. What Jesus thinks about certain practices, certain things, we should want to think after Him. The same thing. That's what it means to be a disciple of someone or something. It means to adhere ourselves to that teaching. There were those that called themselves the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the demands of Jesus Christ become so difficult, John tells us in his gospel that they turned from him and never walked with him again. Proving that they were only His disciples in a very legalistic sense. Not from the heart. Not from the heart. Not by conviction. Not by conversion. Not by being born again. Not by the habitation of the Holy Spirit who writes the, the law of God upon our hearts. Not of any of that, but of, of, of some type of legalism. That is, some type of outward structure or morality that they thought was good for themselves. So they followed Jesus. They listened to Him. And they probably regurgitated many of the things He said because of what they could get from Him. Because of what they could gain from Him. And when it became too difficult to follow him in his teaching, that is, it became too personal, they left. It's just too costly. 
See, we have many parables, and we've looked at some of these parables. We looked at some of these passages of Scripture that teach us the costliness of true discipleship. Amen? We've looked at the passages, and all of those passages that we looked at, if you remember, the one thing that we've learned is that what is required to follow Jesus? Everything. Everything. You must pick up your cross, and you must follow Him. That is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will at times be difficult, can be difficult, probably will be difficult, challenging, maybe unnerving, causing anxiety, fear. And in subsiding those emotions, the Lord Jesus said, fear not those who can destroy the body. Fear them not. But fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. Fear him. And brothers and sisters, a disciple, so that we are clear on this, is a Christian. In the book of Acts, the disciples of Jesus Christ were called Christians. So if you're here this morning and you you acknowledge yourself to be a Christian, I want you to ponder and consider, are you a disciple? Are you a learner? Are you a pupil of Jesus Christ? If you are not a disciple, if you are not a pupil, if you are not a student, if you are not a learner of the ways and the teachings of Jesus Christ, And those ways and teachings aren't just a legalistic moral grid that you follow to be a good person, but they are convictions. They are the love of your life, so to speak. They are the very light of your being. They are what you hold to and cling to. This is where God has made you alive in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are not that, you are not a Christian. You're not a Christian. If you are not a student and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. And that's this prayer, brothers and sisters, is directed to those who are Christians. It's directed to those who have had their eyes opened, who have had their hearts of stone taken away and hearts of flesh put in. It's those who now walk in the humility of the Spirit, recognizing that I have absolutely no strength, no Power, nothing in me whatsoever can bless the name of my God. I must humble myself. I must throw myself before Him. I must acknowledge that my righteousness is filthy rags before Him. And I need to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus. Because my righteousness is no good. That's why pride is such... A terrible evil in the life of a Christian. 
Oh, pride. The exaltation of self. In a reality where we have nothing to offer is pure stupidity. In the true reality where we have nothing to offer or give, to persuade, to convince, to encourage God to do one thing for us. It is deceiving. And pride is a very deceptive thing. And we can convince ourselves into most things. We can convince ourselves that we are not as bad as the next person. We are better than most. And that somehow by saving us, God did himself a favor. Those are all lies. And those lies all originate out of hell. Those lies all originate out of sin. They're birthed out of sin. And they bring no glory to God. And they bring no healing to the believer. They only serve to deceive him, to tear them down, and to, and to beckon God's chastisement. What does a parent do when the child remains hardened to the things that are right? They must receive a spanking. They must be disciplined. They must be rebuked. They must be corrected. Now listen to me. A parent will do all those things, sometimes in a different order, sometimes a combination of all those things, sometimes one or two. Nevertheless, a parent does those things because they love the child. And God loves His children. And God, according to Hebrews 12, He spanks those whom He loves. He chastens those whom he loves. In fact, the Apostle Paul, if he wrote the book of Hebrews, says this in that passage of Scripture. He says, if we have not been chastened as sons, we are not the children of God. I want to make two points as we address this petition that what we are dealing with and what we are concerned with is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians, we pray rightly. That we know how to pray. We know what prayer is and we know what we should ask for and we know what is meant by the things that we ask for. We don't ramble on. We don't just say meaningless words, thoughtless words, words we speak without any thought connected to them. How does that glorify God? It's kind of like, and I'm going to convict us all here. You know, we can murmur and mumble and expect the person in the next room to listen to us. And when they say, huh? And we get upset. Or we're talking and walking away. And it might be something important. And we're like, you're not listening to me. I told you. Well, we said it when we were walking away. Communication and respect. We are to go to the Lord and we are to pray to Him and we are to call upon His name and we are to acknowledge that He is our Father. We ought to pray in a way that's thoughtful. We ought to pray in a way that is thoughtful and if it's thoughtful, it'll be meaningful. 
We would have thought about it. We would have not just regurgitated something we've heard someone else say, but that these would be our prayers. Notice when Jesus began the prayer, this is teaching, He said, when you pray. Our prayers are going to be a little different. They're going to sound differently. But they're all going to be out of the same well. They're all going to be out of the same vein of truth. And we need to understand what this truth is so that we can make our prayers personal. Oh God, I am calling upon you as my God. When you pray, pray in this way. Our Heavenly Father. Personal. Personal. This petition... Brothers and sisters, as I've already stated, addresses holiness. Holiness. I want to give you several verses on the, where, that Jesus used on the Sermon on the Mount to help us understand this petition. First of all, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have been cleansed of their sins. Blessed are those who have been purified, made clean by the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who have been washed in the water of the Word of God. And the word blessed is there to explain this extreme joy and happiness that a Christian has knowing that they have now been cleansed by God in order to live a life that is becoming of a child of God. We have to be clean. We have to be clean. We do not come in the service of a great and glorious and holy King in the filth of our sins. We must be cleansed. We must be washed. We must be made clean. And it's God who cleanses the sinner. It's God who washes the heart. And it's God who comes and takes away that defilement that separates a man from God, a woman from God. God comes and does a cleansing work. And what does Jesus say? Blessed is that person. Blessed, happy, joyous. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. It's hard to be down. In this life, when you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. When the greatest event in history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When that has been applied to your account and you've been made clean and whole in Christ based upon His life and resurrection. That you can now stand before God in His presence. That you can now call Him Abba Father. No longer in fear of His anger and His wrath. Being cast into an eternal hell. What other problems can you have? 
What other problems could you have that could compare to such a blessing as this? Knowing you've been washed from your sins. You have been cleansed from your defilement. And God has now accepted you in the beloved. And He now calls you son and daughter. Oh, what else could be more precious to the sinner? What else? The Bible says in the book of Psalms, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man that his God does not hold his iniquities against him. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5, let your light Shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now what does this verse have to do with holiness? Well, think about it. I once lived a life of selfishness and personal defilement, but now I live as a pupil and a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Let your light shine. Let your holiness shine. Let your your striving for that Fought for that, um, the blessing of the name of Jesus. Let all of that come to fruition in your life so that others see it. Your holiness. What are they going to see? Your good works. Your holiness. I no longer do things in my name, but in the name of Jesus. I want you to see in me Jesus Christ. And I want you to bless His name. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. That we begin to put our lives to the task of holiness. That which we have been saved for. That which which we have been set apart for. So that we would what? So that we would be living testimonies. And that when people see our good works. When they see our holy living. That they in turn would do what? Bless the name of our Father. Verse 20, for I say in the same chapter, verse 20, but I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is this verse important? This verse is important, beloved, because we're talking about God's holiness in us. We're not talking about our own righteousness. That's not holiness. We're not talking about your own standard of morality. We're not talking about those things that you do that you like to do. And the only reason you do them because you like them. I keep these particular rules because I like these rules. That's not holiness. That is not holiness. The Lord God, the Lord Jesus said as He walked among the Pharisees, He said, these things you do are an abomination to God. Those things that you esteem are abomination to God. What did they esteem? They esteemed their own moral paradigms. They esteemed their own morality. They esteemed their own rules. They esteemed their own laws. They esteemed their own traditions. Not the things of God. They esteemed their own way of living. These are the things I like. And so many Christians live exactly like that. Well, I pick and choose what I want. I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to be my own kind of Christian because we live in America. Well, and that's just the way we do things in America. I want this, I like this, I don't like that. Preacher, I hear you, but you know what? That's your opinion. That's what you 
think. I mean, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read the Word of God to people I'm counseling, and they look right at me. I, there's no interpretation. It's just a reading of black ink on white paper. And they say, well, that's your interpretation. I'm like, there's no interpretation. This is just what the Word of God says about you. The Lord Jesus is acknowledging that it's not about righteousness. It's not about just the moral paradigms. You can't consider yourself just to be a good person and be okay. And there's a lot of people like that today. There's a lot of people sitting in churches who believe they're going to heaven because of their own righteousness. Because of their own church going. Because of their own church affiliation. Because of who their pastor is. Because of who their mommy and daddy is. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you not. Jesus says your righteousness must surpass that. And the only righteousness that can surpass that is that righteousness imputed to us by the life and death of Jesus Christ. One more verse. Verse 48 of chapter 5. Jesus says, Therefore be perfect as your Father is perfect. All of these verses in this sermon would behoove us and to call upon us to consider the pardon of our sins. When we fail to glorify God. When we fail at loving God. Loving Him. Giving Him His due. When we fail at loving one another as we are to love ourselves. When we have moral failures. When we fall. When we transgress. When we commit sin. Whether in thought whether in word or whether in deed, we are sensitive to the fact that we are sinning against our God. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 is a psalm of David. It's called a mass school. A maskal is a psalm of instruction here. David is teaching us about repentance. And he says, How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in, whom, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's blessed. She's blessed. Who is the true disciple of Christ then? It is simply the one who follows the teaching. It's not just simply the one who follows the teaching of Jesus. But it's the one who loves the teachings of Jesus more than anything else. It's not just simply the follower. It's the lover. What did Jesus say in John 15? He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Jesus wasn't calling upon His 
disciples and Christians to obey for the sake of the law. He was calling upon Christians to obey for the sake of their love for Him. A greater purpose. A higher purpose. If you love me, if you're interested in me, if you want union and communion with me, if you want these things, then will you not consider your own holiness? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading at verse 65 because I think this is important as we are you know, unfolding and looking in deeper into this idea of disciple and Christian and the pardon of sin, the confession of sin, which beloved many today don't think are necessary. There are many Christians... I can't remember the numbers. You can look these numbers up. There are surveys that are provided where Christians are asked about repentance and very few, the percentage of Christians that believe repentance is good, necessary, and beneficial is shrinking. As our society becomes more selfish, as we become more self-interested, as we become more self-centered, isn't that what you expect? Isn't that a logical fruit of a selfish society is to repent less and to praise self more? Well, let's read John chapter 6, verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, you do, not, do, you do not want to go away, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now notice verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? Well, whose disciples shall we be? To whom shall we go? Who's going to instruct us? Who's going to teach us the ways of life? Who's going to give us their instruction on how to live? Where shall we go? To whom shall we go? That's what Peter's saying. Well, we're your disciples. We're your students. You're teaching us life and how to live. In verse 68, and Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, And did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And of course he's speaking of Judas. See, Judas, I want you to think, why is that verse there? Why is that verse there? Because notice this profession of faith. Where else can we go? Now I want you to know, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, a Christian, 
You have to answer this question in the same way Peter did. If you were said, well, go away. Go live by some other philosopher, some other teacher. And you said, no! To whom shall we go? Because only Jesus has the words of eternal life. We know this. Why? Because the Spirit is working in our hearts. The Spirit has convinced me and convicted me and washed me and has purged my sin. The Spirit is working the power of the truth in me. And there is no one else that has the words of eternal life. Can you say that this morning emphatically? That it's Jesus and Jesus alone who has the words of eternal life. Can you say that? You must say that if you are a disciple of Christ. You must acknowledge there is nowhere else to go. There is no one else. There is only Christ and Him alone. And I will believe and trust in Him with all my being. But Jesus adds in there about Judas. Why? Because notice, where was Judas during these ministry moments of the disciples? Where was Judas, I ask? Where was Judas when the disciples went out preaching the gospel? And healing the sick and infirm and the lame and restoring the sight of the blind. Where was Judas? He was there. He was there. He was in the midst of the disciples. He went out two by two with the disciples and he too preached the gospel. He too called other men to to turn from their sins. He called other families to come to Christ. And yet he never truly accepted and believed the very truth he preached. What a warning to preachers. What a warning to teachers. What a warning to officers of the church. What a warning to fathers, mothers. We can impose upon everyone else this standard of holiness and the standard of God's righteousness and not live it ourselves. Jesus adds that in there because He wants us to ask the question, where would we go? What would we do if there is any other place, brothers and sisters, you think you can go? I call you now to repent of your sins and to embrace Jesus Christ. I call upon you right now to confess your own righteousness as sin before God. I call upon you right now to beg God for pardon and He will forgive you of your sins. And He will cleanse you. And He will restore you. And He will make you a son and daughter of the living God. And you will be able to say with Peter at that time, there is nowhere else to go. You see, brothers and sisters, we must be born again. We must be regenerated in order for us to properly obey the petition that is here, we must have hearts that have been washed, made clean, made whole. 
We must have the habitation of the Holy Spirit working in us the things, the truths of God. So that when we confess our sins, it's sincere. It's sincere. I won't have, any, I won't have time to do anything else, but I want to end with this. Why is this regeneration? Why is this union with Christ, this being born again, why is it so necessary in the pardon of our sins? Well, beloved, without the Holy Spirit in you, you will never hate sin. You'll never hate sin. You might dislike it for a time. You may not like the fruit of sin. You may not like the consequences of sin. And you may not do certain sins because you don't want to get caught. Because you don't want to embarrass yourself. But it's not because you don't love them. It's not because you hate them. It's just because you're indifferent to them. I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, your indifference to sin is not hatred. The prophet Habakkuk said, Oh, love good and hate evil. Love good, hate evil. The Lord Jesus, when He began His preaching ministry, started that ministry with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can't repent of your sins, brothers and sisters, if you're still loving your sins. You can't truly repent of your sins if you only feel sorry about your sins. You see, brothers and sisters, repentance is more than just personal sorrow. There is a sorrow the world exhibits when bad things are done. When we see evil in the world, people can truly exhibit a sorrow for those things. But that doesn't make it true repentance. True repentance is a changing of the mind. It's a turning of the heart. It's a change of the affections. It's, Lord, I used to love this, but now I hate this and I love that. I love your ways. I'm your disciple. I'm your pupil. I want you to teach me the things of God. I used to look at the Word of God indifferently. If I like it, so be it. Yeah, I could take it or leave it. But now, oh, it's honey. Oh, it's sweet as honey. It's the words of life. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation. Day and night. How, who says that? Only the one the Holy Spirit is working in and mean it. If you just feel sorry for sin, it's not repentance. Psalm 51. Turn there. I'm going, to, I'm going to open this up more next week. But look at Psalm 51. Look with me at those first four verses. Now, let me, let me set the background for the psalm. 
Everybody look up at me. This is the psalm that David wrote when he found true repentance for his sin of adultery and murder. What makes this psalm so important for us is that David was the one that God said, he's a man after my own heart. What a testimony, right? I don't, has God ever said that about us? Here's a man after my own heart. And David was a man after his own heart. God didn't lie. But some, somewhere along the way, David began to sin. And he began to stop repenting of his sin. And that sin hardened his heart. And it hardened his conscience. So much so that it led to him committing adultery. It led to him trying to cover up his adultery in precipitating the murder of the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. And David spent about a year and a half in his sin. And after God confronted David with the prophet, this is a psalm that David penned. Now let's listen to these words. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things in David's repentance. First of all, the object of David's repentance is God. God. And notice the things he brings out about God. God's loving kindness. God's compassion. Look right there. Be gracious to me. His graciousness. His lo- your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion. What is David saying? My sin is not only heinous. It's heinous. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. One of God's moral laws. But God, my sin is even worse than adultery because I have as your son committed a crime against your grace. You've been good to me, oh God. You've been gracious to me, Heavenly Father. You've been compassionate to me and I have spurned that compassion. I have walked away from that goodness and I've sinned against you and you alone. David is not saying he has not sinned against Bathsheba. David isn't saying he did not sin against Uriah. That's not what he's saying. He is saying my sin is so grievous and so heinous because I've sinned against mercy. I've sinned against compassion. I took you for granted. I took you for granted. Wash me. He's taking responsibility for his sins when he says, Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions. He's not excusing his sins. He's not blaming others. Well, if she hadn't been bathing on the roof, Well, if I haven't 
If I hadn't listened to my counselors, I would not have sinned. David says, no, none of that matters. What matters is I did what I did and I offended the compassion and the mercy and the goodness and the grace of my God. And I'm broken. I need cleansing. I need restoration. I need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to come and breathe and refresh me and my religious affections again because I've been indifferent and I have been cold to the things of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, Christians need to repent. We need to beseech God for pardon. And we need to know when we confess our sins, we've been cleansed in Christ, no doubt. We've been delivered from the, from the dominion of the law. We are no longer under its condemnation. Yet, brothers and sisters, when we sin, we still violate God's moral standard and we go even further and sin against His goodness to us. His goodness. Have I not called you my child? Have I not brought you into my family? Have I not cleansed you from your sins? Have I not restored fellowship with you? Have I not given you joy? Have I not given you everlasting life? Have I not given you the Word of God? It sounds like the Jews that Paul's dealing with in Romans 2. All of these blessings and every advantage... Yet you spurned spurned the goodness of God. And the goodness of God should have led you to repentance. You know what Paul is saying in Romans 2, 4? He is saying, you presume so much upon God's goodness, you despised His grace. And instead of repenting of your sins because of His goodness, walking in that repentance, because where is God not good to you? Where is God not good? When is He not good? He's good all the time. And we should walk in that goodness leading us to repentance. If we don't, we're guilty of the same thing the Pharisees were guilty of. Spurning the graciousness and despising the goodness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, all I've pointed out with you this morning is this. Christians ought to be concerned about daily pardon. And we're going to unfold that more next week. But I'm here to tell you, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I want to encourage you, develop a healthy prayer life of repentance. I want to encourage you to repent of your sins daily. Remember, this petition is connected to the previous petition. Uh, get, uh, uh, talking about daily bread. We ought to pray for pardon on a daily basis. Because when do we see God's blessing in our lives? Daily. Daily. And it should move us to ask for pardon of sin. Let's pray.